You are listening to a sermon by New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. At our church back in Montana, we had this ancient aphorism that we quoted often. It goes as far back as probably the second century, but it goes like this. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting great battles. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting great battles. It was our way of reminding each of us that none of us has it figured out. That all of us are in fact needy people and we are needed people. We're needy and we're needed. The goal there was to promote gospel community where humility and grace and compassion would become more and more the norm. Everyone is indeed fighting great battles. And whether you have been a Christian all your life or this is your very first time in a worship service, we suffer together. And the God who made us knows that suffering and cares deeply. So this morning, our scripture reading is a text, a song written over 3,000 years ago. It's the words of King David, and King David is suffering. Once again, King David finds himself running for his very life. So our text is Psalm 63. For those who are able, would you please stand with me for the public reading of God's word? O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you this morning for you have revealed again to us what we need for life and godliness. And as we engage with this song, as we feel these emotions of David, we pray that you would be our instructor that you would strengthen and refresh our souls, that you would lift all of our eyes to Jesus, the author 
and perfecter of our faith. For we ask together in his name, amen. Amen. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's boxer Mike Tyson. Everyone is patient until they merge onto I-15. That's Pastor Jason Berry. Indeed, everyone you meet is fighting great battles. I don't need to tell you that we live in a world that has been profoundly damaged by sin. Already this morning, we've talked about the damage of war, the grief of evildoers taking over a country, and the cost of life that comes with it. Closer to home, we have spouses and friends who act hatefully towards us. Bullies bully, and abusers abuse. Isaiah 29, 16 describes the fall in this way. The prophet says, you turn things upside down. It's as if the pot were speaking back to the potter and giving instruction and critique. Battles come at us in this upside down world. Some are more weighty than others. The the punch in the mouth kind, like a horrible medical diagnosis that no one wants to hear or the searing pain of losing a loved one. But big or small, all the battles that we face in this fallen world expose our hearts. They put on display what it is that we are really living for. What makes you tick? And I'm so sad when I see how little it takes to expose my wicked heart. After living in Montana for 18 years, driving on I-15 is a treacherous task. And as much as I would like to blame the evil that comes out of my mouth on the incredible amount of vehicles and lanes that are now there, and the fact that blinkers no longer mean anything, I realize that those words come out of me because they are inside of me. Those words are the overflow of my heart. And that difficult situation just exposes what's already in there. In in the fourth century, Augustine prayed this way, our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. We've seen this morning David's restless cry, haven't we? Four times in this song, he uses the word soul. For David knows about that inner person. David knows that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. David knows that the heart of the matter is actually the matter of the heart. So this morning we consider the heart of the matter. What are you absolutely certain of when the ground shakes beneath you? As we consider this psalm, we need to remember that in times of smooth sailing, we often say, God is good. But when times get difficult, we doubt that truth. And we often turn for security and satisfaction to the things that we can see and touch and taste. Even tiny setbacks expose our incredible love of ourselves. 
So as we view this psalm this morning through the lens of Jesus Christ, I want us all to see and say in the first person, because the better than life love of Jesus secures my forgiveness and satisfies my soul, I am free, free from my love of me. And I engage this fallen world with unshakable hope. So again, as we look at the psalm through the lens of Christ, because the better than life love of Jesus secures forgiveness and satisfies my weary soul, I am free from my love of me and engage this world with unshakable hope. So to that end, then, we'll take up three points this morning. The passion of a satisfied soul, the commitments of a satisfied soul, and the hope of a satisfied soul. So passion, commitments, and hope. First then, let's look at the passion of a satisfied soul. David is passionate. David is zealous, even though David is suffering. So let's understand what makes David tick by considering three dimensions of his deep passion. First, deep thirst. Look with me again at verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Friends, who talks like this? Who, who prays this way? This is King David. A king who is incredibly thirsty physically, but knows that there is something far more important than water. So let's walk a few miles in David's sandals as we begin. Let's take a 50,000 foot view and remember, one of the challenges in studying the Psalms of David is knowing what is the particular context, which Running for his life moment is this, right? David spent 13 years running from Saul. Um, last week we saw David um, hiding in a cave and, and running from the Philistines. David is familiar with running for his life. Well, from whom is he running this time? What is the context of Psalm 63? We know the king is on the run. In the superscript, we're told David is in the wilderness of Judah. So we put in the back of our minds that David is far from the tabernacle and the palace. David is lost of his family, his throne, his reputation, and his security. From whom is David running? Tragically and sadly, we see in this context, David is actually running from his own flesh and blood. His third son, Absalom, chasing his father, having, having a coup erected and, and, and taken over. David is now on the run from his own son, his own flesh and blood. And in that running, David says, my soul thirsts for you. Oh God, my flesh faints for you. So this is the first of David's use of first of four uses of soul. This is deep soul thirst. The man after God's own heart has a single minded devotion. We've heard it. 
David says in Psalm 27, he's a single-minded man. One thing I've desired of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. So now, far from the house of the Lord, David is seeking, thirsting, and fainting. And in verse 2, we see the result of his pursuit. Look there at David's deep satisfaction. From deep thirst to deep satisfaction. In verse 2, David says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because David sought the Lord in the tabernacle, he found him in the desert. So those rituals of old covenant worship embedded in the heart of this weary king now well up in worship when he's stuck in a wasteland. Out of the overflow of his heart, David's mouth speaks. Spurgeon says, although there was desert all around him, There was no desert in him, no desert in his heart. Verse five describes that satisfaction. And this is the second use of the word soul. Look at verse five. David says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now let's recognize that something gets lost in translation when we say soul satisfaction with fat and rich food. Um, Let's understand that fatness and richness in the Old Testament, this was the very finest. This was the choicest of meals. In fact, according to Levitical law, fatness was reserved for the Lord alone. But maybe if we hit Google Translate this morning on power, I'm sorry, on uh, fat and rich food, it might say something like this. My soul will be satisfied as with a choice cut of Montana beef. It's about the best I can do. That's that deep soul satisfaction. That's that moment when you taste something and you can't even control yourself. You simply say, mmm. That's the soul satisfaction that David is describing for us here. And he continues reflecting on his deep satisfaction in verse 3. Look with me there. We've seen David's deep thirst. We've seen his deep satisfaction. Now we consider David's deep conviction. Look at this profound statement. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David is saying that there's something better than the air that we breathe. What is it? It is steadfast love. Two words in our English translation, one word, chesed in the Hebrew. One word, a profound theological term that is used almost 250 times in the Old Testament, primarily to describe that incredible, loyal, faithful, covenant love that God has for his people. Children, listen to this. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her children's Bible, this is the way she translates steadfast love. It's that never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I love that. I love that. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The Lord often uses this term to describe himself. 
in Exodus when he reveals himself to Moses. Remember, he tucks Moses into the rock. And how does he describe himself? A God who is compassionate and gracious. Kind and compassionate. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. And the very next thing, showing steadfast love to thousands. So in God's self-revelation, he uses this word twice to describe himself. His never stopping, never giving up love. David knows that love. He's the man after God's own heart. What he's seeking in the desert is intimacy with God, communion with God, fellowship with the God who made him. David actually uses the same term in Psalm 23 when he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Surely goodness and steadfast love, the same word there, will follow me. It will chase me. It will pursue me. So the one who knows being chased remembers that there's another one pursuing him. And it is the steadfast lover of his soul. So David, in the midst of the desert, prioritizes the steadfast love of God over everything. Well, just slow down here, friends, and point out something. David has made an incredible shift. David has made an incredible shift in his thinking that I think each of us is somewhere on the journey of making. But David has made that shift from saying, if you love me, Give me good things to, if you love me, I don't need anything else, even life itself. David, you see, has found deep satisfaction. He's found true love. On the Izu Island of Japan, a five-year-old albatross named Diko also thought that he had found true love. For over two years, he sought to impress the love of his life by building fancy nests for her and fighting off rival suitors. Each day, he stood faithfully by her side. Sadly, she never returned his affection. She never looked at him. In fact, In those two plus years that Diko was pursuing her, she never even moved. You see, tragically, Diko the albatross had fallen for a decoy albatross. Researchers had placed these wooden decoys all over the Izu Islands, painted them to look like beautiful albatrosses. They wanted to attract them there to a safe place so that the endangered species could, in fact, multiply. Well, Dico wasn't helping with that at all. (laughs) In his final report, no kidding, in his final report, Japanese researcher Fumio Sato said, Dico seems to have no desire to date real birds. (laughs) No desire to date real birds. You see, Dico had lost his passion for the real thing. David had, uh, Dico had lost his attraction for the real thing. He had no passion. Friends, if we're honest, we're like Dico. 
We are so often attracted to decoys. We so often fall for false gods that we think will really satisfy us. But instead, they just dampen our delight in Jesus. So by way of application this morning, I just want to ask you to consider what decoys are stealing your attention. What passion of yours may be robbing your passion for Christ? There are false gods all around us. Martin Luther said it like this, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God. There are false gods all around us. They come generally in two kinds, two kinds of decoys. Let's think about poison and pleasure. Poison are those decoys that are inherently evil. They are sinful desires by nature, things like lust and bitterness and greed. So let me just say this morning, if you are deleting your internet history in shame, if you are harboring bitterness towards another human being and refusing to pursue reconciliation, or if your business practices violate the laws of this state, you may be consuming poison. Your false God may be killing you. So the invitation this morning is come out into the light, come into the light and know that you are not alone. Know that the steadfast love of the Lord will meet you and rescue you there. But talk to someone about that false God. The second kind of counterfeit God are pleasures. And these are the ones that are even more difficult to root out because it's those good gifts from the Lord that we love too much. Good gifts like family, health, Food, friendship, homes, job satisfaction, financial security, productivity, entertainment, music, sports, sunsets, beaches, computers, iPhones. You see, all of these are gifts that are to be used wisely in moderation in service of the king. We see it easily with the phone, don't we? There are so many incredible things that we can do with it. Even this morning, I spoke to my wife, Kristen, in London, where she's awaiting her flight to Barcelona, Spain with our daughter. There are so many incredible things. We know also, though, that it can be an incredible distraction, an incredible distraction that robs us of our true attention in the moment. So what we say here is there are lots of good things that God has given us, but they make bad gods. Good goods make bad gods. So I want to encourage you to be thinking about what are those things in your life that may be dampening your delight in King Jesus? Even those good things that you may just be wanting too much. And here, as we talk about the pleasures, I just want to hone in on one specific and that's other people, friends, spouses, roommates, your classmates at school. There are ways that we can distort those relationships and use them in a way that is sinful. Listen to this. You cannot love someone 
and use them at the same time. You cannot love someone and use them at the same time. What do I mean? There are two ways that we use another person. The first one is we, we make God-like demands of them. We expect them to get it right. We expect them to be there with us every moment of the day to know just the right words to say, to always be an encourager, to always have the right directions, to always have the right answer for us. And some of us in our marriages, we experience that tension where we're asking way too much of another human being. There is no way an individual can carry this freight. I am asking my wife to do what only Jesus can do. So I want to ask you to consider that. Are you placing godlike expectations on another human being? The other way that we use people, though, is for their approval. It's real easy for us to set up a universe where we are trying to perform for another person. And kids, as you've gone back to school now, I want you to think about those people in your classes, whether it's a boy or a girl who, who kind of carries the sway in the class, the one that everyone wants to be like, the one that everyone struggles to say no to. I want you to think about fear of man because all of us struggle with this, not just children. Adults do too. We want the, we want the approval of another individual. So we do and say and, and act as they would want us to do and say and act. So fear of man is another of these ways that we use someone else. And ultimately, it flows from my love of self, right? I seek to get someone's approval so that I feel okay. I'm using them for my own gratification. So friends, this is where I want us to, this is where I want to leave you, just to consider what are you placing on the palate of your soul, What are you delighting in more than anything else? Where might you be serving a counterfeit God? I just want to ask you to have some conversations over lunch today. Think about these things. Um, There is hope for those who are false worshipers, right? David himself was a false worshiper. And he received and embraced that steadfast love of God. And so for you this morning, I want you to hear this as an invitation to come out into the light, to rest again in the grace that Jesus Christ provides. His love is endless. You cannot out-sin your king. So wherever you are this morning, come out into the light and embrace again his steadfast love. David had that kind of passion. David had made the shift from if you love me, give me good things to if you love me, I don't need anything. And David fueled that passion. David fueled that passion. So let's just look at a couple now of the commitments of a satisfied soul. We've seen the passion of a satisfied soul. Now let's say, how do we fuel that passion? How do we really make that happen in our lives? Two ways. The first is confident resolve. Look at verse 8. The third use of the word soul. What does David say? My soul clings to you. 
my soul clings to you. A Hebrew word rich with connection and intimacy. It's the same word that Moses uses to describe the marriage arrangement in Genesis 2, where for this reason, a husband will leave his father and mother and cleave. He will cling to his wife. So David is is vowing, he's making this confident resolve. He's saying, my soul will be wed to you, O Lord. As we look on, though, we realize David knows how needy he is. David knows that he's incapable of clinging to the Lord as he ought to. So he goes on in verse 8 to say, your right hand upholds me. David knows that he cannot grip the Lord apart from the Lord's sure grip upon him. And this is where I really want to ask you to remember, who is David? Who is King David? I'm afraid it's really easy for us to picture David as the cardboard cutout at the movie theater, right? It's larger than life. He's got huge buff muscles and he's got his sling over his shoulder and he's, he's holding on to Goliath's sword, the spoils of his victory. And we can see David as this triumphant king who needs nothing. He is independent. He is sovereign. And friends, we've got to remember that King David was a sinner in flesh and blood just like you and me. David has a history. David has a horrible history. David is guilty of adultery. David is guilty of murder. David is guilty of countless plans of deception. And yet it's in the midst of those sinful failings that he clings to his Lord. He clings to his Lord. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Picture with me this beach scene. I know it happens every day. There's the toddler who wants to go out into the waves. So they're really confident, right? Not confident enough to go by themselves. So they grab a hold of a hand of a parent. And they drag that grown-up out into the water. and, And as the waves start to crash, they get up to their knees and... And then they see the big swell coming and they do the math, right? That wave is going to go over my head. And they turn in angst to this grown-up. And what does that grown-up do? Parents, you've done that before, right? It's that beautiful lift move. Pull them right up out of the water and rescue them. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And watch this. Let's keep going with this illustration because those of you who've been in that situation, you've rescued a little one, you know the first thing that you do, right? You pull them to you. You say, it's okay. You have a huge smile on your face. You say, it's okay. I gotcha. You're gonna be okay. And friends, what an image of this steadfast love of God who upholds us by his powerful right hand. And when he upholds us, he looks at you face to face and he says, it's okay. I gotcha. I'm not going to let you down. You're going to be 
okay. You know, it's so important for us to remember as we talk about the commitments of the Christian life that our commitments flow out of God's acceptance. That we commit not for his acceptance, but from his acceptance. Because the Lord has embraced me, I eagerly desire more of him. So for those of you who are just looking in, and and maybe you were starting to think like, yeah, I've got this Christianity thing figured out. It's always just do this, do that. Give me the list and I'll try to meet it. Nothing could be further from the truth. We serve God from his acceptance, not for his acceptance. So that's the first That's the first commitment that we make. It's confident resolve. And we saw that David had need for that renewal, didn't he? David has an incredible history. So in this psalm, he renews his vows, as it were. He recommits to the Lord. Look at his vows. Look with me again at verse 3. What does he say? My lips will praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. My mouth will praise you. David is renewing his vows. He's committing with confident resolve to do the things that he knows are right and noble and true from God's acceptance, not for it. Well, that leads us nicely then to this other commitment, and that is the commitment of regular meditation, regular meditation. Look at verse six. David says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, Spurgeon says, David consecrated his pillow. He was awake in the middle of the night. And what does he do? He steers his thoughts. He steers his thoughts to the steadfast love of God. In Psalm 119, meditation is likened to eating the word of God. And that's a way to think about it, chewing on the word of God. The Puritans talked about meditation as the halfway house between reading scripture and praying. Meditation is that Taking the truth of the Bible and chewing on it, thinking on it, visualizing it, personifying it. Steer your thoughts towards Jesus. I know in the 21st century when you hear meditation, it's hard to not go some crazy places. It's hard to not think about mystic trying to empty your mind or trying to launch on some voyage into inner space. The great Ed Clowney wrote an entire book on meditation. And this is what he says in correction of that. He says, to seek the face of the living God, the Christian does not launch a voyage in inner space, nor does he center on abstract infinity. Rather, he meditates on the Christ of scripture and the scripture of Christ. So there's two places I'm steering my thoughts The Lord Jesus and his word. That's what I'm thinking on. That's what I'm chewing on. And we see in this text that David is doing that. By way of transition, David says he's doing that in the watches of the night. 
It's a great way for us to remind ourselves that David is still in the hot desert. David is still not in a good place. That in fact, David has guards posted and they're rotating on four hour shifts. So in their clamoring, they wake him up and he steers his thoughts heavenward. He takes his thoughts vertically. So still in the wilderness, then let's consider this final point, the hope of a satisfied saint, the hope of a satisfied soul. And we'll look at it from two angles, two Kings this morning. First, this King David, the great King David that we've been talking about. David rested, didn't he? In the sure knowledge that the one he called my God would never forsake him, that his enemies would be defeated. Look with me there at verse nine. But those who seek to destroy my life, there's the fourth use of soul. Those who seek to destroy my soul, my person, shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. Remember, David's not a superhero. David's not an actor who's read the script. He doesn't know how this story ends. Yet, by faith, He confidently asserts, he confidently asserts that his God will deliver him. He hoped in the strength, not in the strength of his passion, not in the strength of his commitments. It wasn't his confident resolve. It wasn't his meditation. It was his faithful God. David looked away from himself to another David looked ahead to another king. There was another king driven out into the wilderness, not for his own sins, but for ours. There was another king who clung passionately to his God and meditated day and night. Psalm 1 tells us that king was like a tree planted by streams of water that bore incredible fruit. There was another king who lamented, I thirst. There was another king who cried, my God. Matthew records for us about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So friends, we rest this morning in the sure knowledge that the greater son of the great King David did not receive mercy, but suffered the wrath and curse of God for you, for me. On the cross, God does not demand our blood, but he offers his own. It's not your passion that secures your soul. It's not your commitment that satisfies your soul, but his. The true David entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and laid down his life as the ultimate act of steadfast love. After the sermon, we're going to sing of our King of Kings. And we'll say this line, for even in your suffering, you saw to the other side. 
He saw to the other side for the joy that was set before him, he endured. And yet, as Isaiah says, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And when his soul is made a guilt offering, he will see his, his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That is steadfast love. David describes his own restoration in a way that Jesus finally and fully fulfills. Look with me at verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. Paul picks up on that same language in Romans 3. He says, one day every mouth may be stopped and the whole world will be accountable to God. Elsewhere he says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess one day. In the meantime, everyone is fighting great battles. Our hearts are often exposed and we don't like what is on display. But friends, you need not fear. In Christ, it is not your passion or your commitment, but it's his passion and his commitment to you. Because the better than life love of Jesus secures forgiveness and satisfies your weary soul, you really are free from love of self and free to engage this fallen world with unshakable hope. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Who talks this way? Who prays like this? We do. Let's pray together. Oh, most gracious God, we do rejoice that even in the midst of wilderness battles, your steadfast love is abundant to us and that in Christ we have all that we need. Would you refresh our memories because we're so prone to forget? Would you renew our passion? Would you give us confident resolve that we may live for your glory with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the King of Kings? For we ask together in his name, And all God's people said, Amen. You've been listening to New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.